The following podcast contains explicit language. You know, I think we saw the president's true colors today, and, and I'm not sure they were red, white, and blue. We see the soul of him when he's flying off the handle and when he's tweeting. Why, for the president, does it seem easier to suggest U.S. intelligence operatives are behaving like Nazis than to call these actual Nazis Nazis? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Today we are talking about the mysterious word Antifa. I learned it's actually Antifa, but nobody seemed to know what that word, which surfaced in Charlottesville over the weekend, means. The neo-Nazis use that word with abandon. It stands for anti-fascist, but it turns out that the anti-fascist crowd also call themselves Antifa. And Heather Heyer, the woman killed in Charlottesville, does not actually represent the Antifa movement, which is a slightly more sleeper group than activists that participate in the Women's March or Black Lives Matter, although some of them, we will learn from our guest, have side hustles as anti-fascists. It is an extraordinarily interesting movement or group of people. They are not quite as thuggy as I expected them to be. And we're going to hear much more about them from Dartmouth professor Mark Bray, who has spent years among them and has a book coming out called Antifa. We'll be back with him right after this. Um, My guest today is Mark Bray. He's an historian and organizer. His book, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, is out soon from Melville House. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we uh, pretty much at Trumpcast have like a Putin uh, Kushner style back channel to Dartmouth College. It's all part of my evil methods to get myself to Hanover more often. Sadly, today we are not in Hanover. I'm talking to you. I'm in Brooklyn and you are in the, the Hanover studio, the Dartmouth studio. Is that right? That's right. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about Antifa today, the sort of word of the moment. And somehow you are in the minority of people who are not hearing the word Antifa for the first time. Nothing right. nothing like that is true for you. You've been among the thugs for years now. I w- wouldn't use that term. But yes, I understand what you're saying. Um, so let's just walk through like we're kindergartners here. I think many of us did hear that word for the first time in the mouths of some of the neo-Nazis that mm. marched on Charlottesville. Yeah. What does it mean? What's its, what are its origins? Um, what are its, what's its ideology and what are its practices? Right. So, I mean, certainly to discuss the history of anti-fascism, you have to start with fascism because we always need to be clear that without fascism, there'd be no need for anti-fascism. So back in the early 20th century, the original fascist movement was Mussolini's uh, fascisti in Italy. You know, they were mimicked by Hitler and his Nazis and, you know, fascism spread across Europe and beyond. And the problem looking back on it is that a lot of people did not take it seriously. A lot of people didn't really think it was a huge problem. People in the United States and elsewhere saw Mussolini and Hitler as like strong uh, men who would be like bulwarks against Bolshevism. And they thought this is fine. This is orderly. This is bringing these countries forward. Now we know that that wasn't how the story turned out. Uh, we, we've seen what happened with the Holocaust and, and the millions of deaths in World War II. So there were people, though, back then who realized from the start that this was a bad trend and started forcibly resisting them in various different ways across the continent. One of the most notable moments in the history of anti-fascism was the Spanish Civil War, when the international brigades from dozens of countries around the world showed up to desperately defend Madrid in what was essentially a preview of World War II. Now, the story shifts with World War II because people think historically, all right, that's the end, right? The Nazis are done. 
we can move on with with everything. But that's not what happens. Nazism and fascism as ideas continue to sort of hibernate in Europe and not even hibernate in the United States. We can see that the KKK was very active in the 50s and 60s. So what happens is modern militant anti-fascism can be dated to the 70s and 80s, predominantly in Britain and Germany, where there are these massive waves of xenophobia that were uh, created by waves of immigration, primarily in the British case from the Caribbean and South Asia. In in Germany, there were a lot of Turks. And so you have a shift from fascists focusing on anti-Semitism to more of a focus on essentially keeping Europe white. And so militant anti-fascism in these periods developed as self-defense among migrants, among leftists, among punks, among gay kids, among anyone who was targeted by fascists to do something when very often the police were sympathetic or or not looking at what was really going on. This spread to the United States in the 80s and 90s with anti-racist action. And we can get into that more if you're curious, but basically that's the sort of lineage that we can trace through to today. The absolute um, alliance in the in the sort of myth making of Mussolini and Hitler of fascists, Italian fascists, and uh, and Nazism, those threads sometimes seem to me to need pulling apart. The fascisti, at least in the beginning, seems a little bit like Trump, like an aesthetic pose, as much as a right. co- cogent cogent ideology. Um, sometimes more than an ideology, right? Yes. And, and, and that's probably the way or part of the reason, right, that the, the fascists could be the threat could be minimized of them the same way that we minimize the threat of, of Donald Trump, that it seems somewhat sort of preening and goofy and um, right. without tactics. Does that seem right to you? That is entirely true. Great point. And and really, so much of it had to do with Mussolini's cult of male bravado Mm. and and putting forward a sense of masculinity, which the fascists argue had been warped and demented by what they perceived to be the sort of effeminate bourgeois capitalists. And they wanted to get back to the sense of masculinity and and fight against, uh, you know, the red threat so to speak. And we can see that with, with Trump, it's, it's almost eerie sometimes. And, th- and you know, if you look at uh, Charlie Chaplin did his great impersonation yeah. of Hitler and later sort of regretted that, like, you know, I, I certainly think that satire is important, but it, we can't simply rely on satire. You know, there was a almost the first wave of responses to the to the uh, the KKK and Nazis um, in Charlottesville was to say, well, they must have a Costco account to get those tiki torches. Right. And they wear these Land's End clothes. And, you know, basically a something like these guys are losers, like just picking on their appearance, picking on their their style, their income level. They're not our class. And, mm-hmm. and their sexual failures. A lot of them was like, boy, these guys can't find a girl. Yes. Yeah. And that seemed fortunately to pass. Uh, that was, I think, the first wave of responses to them before... Uh, Heather Hayer's murder. And And, and the thing I want to point out with that, if I could just add, is that the other side of that, by making it seem like all that's really going on is some desperate, lonely guys who have a terrible job and can't have a girlfriend are like acting out, is to also portray those who organize against them as missing to see that this is really just a joke. Why don't you move on with your life? And I hope that after Charlottesville, we can see that this is a serious threat. And we can agree or disagree about how to respond to that threat, but we do need to respond. I think that's right on. And that's a good transition into what are the anti-fascists and how cogent is their their discourse on ideology and what's their aesthetic. Right. So 
Let's talk about the ideology and then the aesthetic, because I'm, I'm really happy you're focusing on the aesthetic, because that is an interesting part of this. To, to clarify, the way that the media often covers anti-fascists is as if they are sort of, you know, these bored kids looking for a thrill. Hmm. But from having interviewed more than 60 anti-fascists from 17 different countries, I can tell you that essentially being an anti-fascist is like having a second job. Hmm. It's a little bit like being a private investigator. They spent much of their free time on the the most reprehensible message boards you can imagine, tracking fascists across different social media platforms, figuring out who they are, where they live, what their job is, in order to alert their neighbors, in order to alert their employers, in order to figure out who they're organizing with, what kind of events they're trying to set up, in order to try and squash this by making phone calls and writing letters. Because Every anti-fascist would much rather just pick up a telephone and have and be done with it. You know, if if this weren't a threat, these are people who also put time into union organizing, into environmental activism. These are some of the most caring and compassionate people I've met, and they'd much ah. rather be doing productive work if they could. And and I think that's something that gets missed in the discussion is that when we see these conflicts, that's sort of the last resort. That's an indication that the other kinds of methods have unfortunately not succeeded because I could point to a number of different events that would have happened, but, you know, these white power conferences or rock shows at VFWs in rural Maryland get shut down by a few phone calls and we don't even hear the story. So that's part of what it's about. And ultimately, the, the political principle is no platform for fascism. It's an argument that fascism shouldn't be considered an innocent opinion with which we have to disagree and mobilize rhetorical arguments as to its failures, but see it as a threat to humanity, as violence incarnate, and as a political enemy we need to struggle against. And once again, we may disagree on how to struggle against it, but it's incumbent upon us to struggle. And then in terms of the aesthetics, which I think is really fascinating, is the kind of aesthetic of of the black bloc, which is where, you know, people dress uniformly in black for direct action on the street. That originated from the German autonomous movement of the 1980s. And that was a strategy that was used against neo-Nazis in the 80s and 90s in Germany. We don't need to get too far into it. But in Britain, they actually decided, no, we're not going to dress like that. We're going to dress, as they called it, in casuals, which was a way to look sort of like essentially a football hooligan hmm. so that in a melee, the police couldn't tell if you were a fascist, an anti-fascist or someone who was there for the football match. So there's there's all sorts of different aesthetic layers to what this looks like. Uh, you, you talk about, you know, the first move of anti-fascists, at least in modern times, is something that those who opposed Mussolini could never have done, which is spend a shitload of time online. Right, um, right. And um, so, yeah, talk. tell me about, I guess, where do anti-fascists gather online and what are their, mm. are these guys hackers? Like, how, how, why are they better than I am about um, finding out what Nazis are up to? Well, I, I don't know if they're better. I think they just are willing to put more time into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and willing to dredge through the, the, the mire of what this is. But I think just in reference to your earlier point, there is sort of this millennial aesthetic of not caring about things that the alt-right has capitalized upon to portray what they're doing as a joke and like, oh, I'm not really a Nazi, but I think gas chamber jokes are funny. Yeah. And that also has influenced kind of mainstream perspectives on the legitimacy of the entire conflict and as a way to sort of use as a self-defense mechanism to justify apathy. And I, I think that, say what you will, anti-fascists are really sincere. And if you see what their average week looks like, you realize that no one's doing this as a hobby hmm. and that hmm. <clears throat> most of the people who do this work, we will never hear their names. And even their friends and family won't know their names. There are some groups that 
that essentially require new members to alert their immediate family that they are going to do it and get them to sign a form saying that it's okay for them to do this because it's so dangerous that it puts even people around you at risk. And that's the kind of consideration that they have to take. You know, it's almost like uh, joining some elite squad in certain cases, at least in terms of the threat level. You said something else and I forgot what it was. Uh, well, I guess, I mean, hopefully this grows out of it, that there's an article today um, by Thomas Fuller and Alan Foyer and uh, Serge Kowalewski, Kowalewski in the New York Times um, about the growth of Antifa. And it begins with not a story of a concerned citizen, you know, acting like a uh, freelance spy or freelance private detective with noble ends. He's a 27-year-old bike messenger who who showed up at the rally. He uses the name of a Spanish anarchist, Frank Sabate, mm-hmm. and he said, we were not shy about defending themse- ourselves in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know I'm edging toward a both sides case, but I just want to hear you tell me why that's not true when they, you know, when the, when the anti-fascist group shows up prepared for a fight. Well, I mean, if you show up to counter protest neo-Nazis and the police aren't around because we can see the images. There were not police around. I have my political experience in New York through Occupy Wall Street and we could have a peaceful march walking down Broadway. And if someone steps off the curb, they get snatched up. So, so the notion, you know, if we look at Charlottesville, there were not police around. They were guarding the statue. The, the rabbi of the synagogue nearby said he asked for police protection in front of the synagogue and was turned down. So if you're going to show up to confront neo-Nazis, there is a reasonable chance that at some point they will attack you. So the question is, does it make more sense to show up ready to defend yourselves or not ready to defend yourselves? And, you know, I'm obviously portraying it in a way that leads the reader or the listener to a certain conclusion, but I think that the notion of self-defense is part of this. We've seen that they've killed people. We've, And it's not like they're like, oops, I killed someone. You, you see the interviews, they're like, we are going to kill you. We're talking about the, Nazi, um, and, na- the Nazis now. Yes, yeah. right. Yes, of course, the Nazis. And so it, it seems like self-defense is part of what this is to me. I've done some work with the organizers of the Women's March and their strategy for Black Lives Matter. The, some of the original organizers came out of Black Lives Matter it grows out of uh, Dr. King and um, Harry Belafonte's Gathering for Justice strategy of training mm-hmm. in church basements. It's how to, you know, how to get beat up, how to, um, you know, passively resist, how to manipulate the media. But and the Antifa seems to come out of another tradition. And by the way, mm. of course, I'm with you on the idea that, you know, being prepared to throw a fist or bring or use mace you know, in a counter protest seems to me entirely justified, especially when you're not just you're not just confronting people who are exercising their First Amendment rights, but also heavily armed with semi-automatics. Right. And and also the thing to realize is um, when counter protesters defend themselves, it is going to often be portrayed as a both sides were violent. Like it's rare that the media actually portrays self-defense in a political contents mm. as self-defense. It mm-hmm. just that's just the way it is. So for for people who are listening to this, the next time you see a conflict at one of these these events, just take a step back before you believe what the media says and try to think about it. Because if you were in that position, you probably would be portrayed as a violent protester as well. Going back to your comment though about King and the nonviolent tradition. Obviously, 
neither I nor really anyone that I know is saying that everyone needs to physically confront Nazis. I think that the bottom line is that it's important for everyone to do what they can and also to stand in solidarity with each other across different lines. So there's always going to be this debate. We're never going to resolve this debate over sort of a Malcolm X versus MLK perspective. Mm -hmm. But there are ways that these two perspectives can complement each other and we can focus our opposition on neo-Nazis rather than sort of turning inward in, in a counterproductive way. So tell me about the making of an anti-fascist. Um, uh, let's say an American anti-fascist, just because then we can imagine them more homegrown. Are they disaffected youth? Are they ideal idealists? Are they on student council? Or are they uh, listening <laughs> to, um, you know, punk music? Um, are they white? Are they black? Tell me. To some extent, all the above. I mean, if we look at the early days of anti-racist action in the 80s, it was something that largely grew out of punks trying to de defend the punk scene from the growth of neo-Nazi skinheads taking it over. Ah. So in that sense, it had a very subcultural and largely uh, white and largely male kind of um, by element to by it. By largely male. <laughs> and sometimes I, on Trumpcast, just think that I'm basically an anthropologist for of men because there just no mm. women in any of these equations um, outside the Women's March. But well, tell me I, what you mean by largely. The story's not over yet. But, tell me, right, tell right. The story's not over yet. Right. So certainly in the beginning, and, and this is true of some other anti-fascist movements, it, the, the beginning of these movements often starts with the big anti-racist dudes being like, uh, no more. But but the second step, and this is true of the movement in Sweden, this is true of the movement in Germany, the second step is that it, it, it expands to include more different kinds of people, to include more organizing. So for example, in Germany, um, there, isn't, there isn't only Antifa, there's also Fantifa, which is mm. feminist Antifa. Mm -hmm. And so um, last year, there was a, a conference, uh, a, a queer feminist Antifa conference of the Fantifa. And this term dates back to the 1990s. So uh, in Berlin, for example, Antifa plays sort of an important element in the queer scene in terms of trying to push back against a rising far right threat there. So when I said that, I'm, I'm talking about the beginning and, and it has evolved over time. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a, a certain macho dynamic in certain groups in certain contexts. I wouldn't go that far at all. But I think that it would be misleading to sort of simply portray self-defense as something that's exclusively um, masculine. Um, go, go Fontifa. Um, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm team Fontifa. I guess I should read about them first. But tell me again about the making of one of these, one of these uh, sure. Antifa member activists that you've, you worked with. Right. Well, for example, in, in, in a lot of cases, it's it's people's entryway into radical politics because it's very immediate and it's very tangible. You know, so especially in, in the 80s and 90s in the U.S., but also in Europe throughout this whole period, if you have these people in your town and they're threatening your neighbors or if you if you have your sort of only kind of alternative recreational center under threat, that's an immediate thing to respond to. And it has very immediate successes or failures that you can pinpoint as opposed to sort of targeting global injustices. But most of these people are essentially leftists of different stripes who also in most cases do other things. So there are people in Black Lives Matter, there are people from Occupy Wall Street, there are unionists, there are envi environmental activists who, you know, maybe on one day are getting critiqued by the mainstream media for doing X, but on the other day are being praised by the mainstream media for doing Y, and hmm. no one knows that it's the same person. Hmm. 
So, so this is, you know, it's a, a branch of radical leftism whose importance increases or declines based on the threat from the far right. And that's another misnomer is that this sort of slippery slope assumption that if you stop neo-Nazis, then dot, 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 down the slope, you'll end up in totalitarianism. Mm. The, the actual track record of these groups in Europe and the U.S. is once local fascist groups sort of die out, people go back to being union organizers or being environmentalists. Mm. And it's not like, oh, well, who's the ne next most right group that we can go, you know, stomp out or whatever. And that's actually one of the critiques within the radical milieu of anti-fascist organizing is that the critique is it's too focused on who the enemy is. And when the enemy disappears, so does the organizing. So it, it's from that perspective, looking outward is kind of a, a strange accusation. And that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't want to overstate my radical bona fides, but I did do work with ACT UP, uh, you know, during the AIDS crisis. And that very quickly resolved into a more moderate form of activism or, or a less flashy form of activism when the, you know, crisis subsided. So that that sort of makes sense to me. So what um, what can we expect from Antifa? Do they identify as part of the would be resistance? Um, I, I mean, I mean, here in relation to yeah, um, right. the desolation, which who goes by the name? Indeed. Well, I, I would imagine that from an anti-fascist perspective, the resistance to Trump, certainly anti-fascists are resisting Trump, they're resisting the alt-right. So like in, in a simple sense, yes, but the perspective, of course, is broader. Most of these people were resisting before Trump and will continue to resist after Trump. So yes and no, but mostly yes. I mean, certainly Trump is a huge problem. Thank you. Trump is a huge problem is a, you know, yeah. a, a understatement slogan, of the year, for, but a sleeper slogan <laughs> for Trump cast. Um, thank you very, very much for being here, Mark. I could talk to you all day. Pleasure. Take care. And that's the show for today. But before we take off, come on, follow us on Twitter. We are there at Real Trumpcast, except no substitutes. We promise to stay until this is over. Those other guys are going to flee. At Real Trumpcast, follow us on Twitter. Yes, this is a shaming for those who don't follow us. We also have an upcoming live show in Austin, Texas for the Texas Tribune Festival. I so want to tell you who the guests are, but just take my word for it. It's going to be insightful and amazing. You can get more information on that at slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. Today's show was produced by Fontifa activist Jason DeLeon, and I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.